Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. So, uh, in your handout tonight, we're going to deal with a um, kind of a follow-up to last week's lesson on being created in the image of God. So tonight, we're going to look at the specific um, topics of personhood and identity with relation to the fact that we've been made in God's image. What are we, how are we to make sense of the kind of chaotic craziness that's going on in our world with relationship to uh, self-defined personhood and what one believes about themselves, their identity? Let me give some illustrations to kind of start. What, what do I mean by that? Uh, self-proclaimed feminist Miranda Sawyer uh, was always pro-choice, that is, until she became uh, pregnant. And she had this concept in her mind that she could, she could do what she wanted to with, the, the, with babies, being pro-choice. But she wanted this baby desperately, and here's her words. She said, I, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. Yet if I hadn't wanted it, I would think of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. That seemed irrational to me, maybe even immoral. In the end, I have to agree that life begins at conception. So yes, abortion is ending that life, but perhaps the fact of life isn't what's important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. Just think about that for a second. A liberal feminist, and and typically as conservative Christians... Our viewpoint has been that life happens at conception because life happens at conception. The life that is in the womb of a woman is worthy of protections by law, right? I mean, we've prayed for that. We've thought about that with the Supreme Court, even the recent ruling with the Supreme Court. It's our longing and desire. But the, the argument has moved. It's moved from a scientific argument, when does life happen, to an argument of when does a life become a person. And there are all sort of ideologies out there that dictate or determine or suggest to determine when that baby, when that fetus becomes a person. That, to me, is a largely irrational conversation, but that's the world in which we live. Uh, Another illustration that kind of gets at this idea of personhood and identity uh, regards uh, someone by the name of Jessica Savano who is a male-to-female transsexual. Uh, She, he, is a six-foot-four-inch model and actor who created a Kickstarter page for a documentary entitled, I Am Not My Body. And that's Jessica's claim, that she is something different than her biology and her physiology reveals herself to be. Uh, how, How did we get there? Uh, a few months back when we were talking about the Doctrine of Revelation, I referenced a book by Carl Truman, uh, The Rise uh, of the Modern Self, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a fascinating book. I would recommend that you read it. He's got one that's a little more accessible uh, if, if you're not quite as heady or not quite as uh, you know, well-read as he is. Uh, a Strange New World by Carl Truman. Fascinating. Some of what I'm discussing tonight comes from Love Thy Body by Nancy Piercy. 
this is fantastic. In fact, I'm going to use her, uh, her, her kind of framework here in just a moment. And she discusses all of these issues, personhood, biology, how it affects all sort of things from abortion to uh, the culture of hookup sex to the culture of transgenderism, LGBTQ values, that sort of thing. So what gives? How did we get to this place? Okay, And, and where do we come at these issues from a biblical viewpoint? Let me reference something that um, Andrew Walker said in his book, God and the Transgender Debate. As creatures, we can't re- rewrite the design, uh, excuse me, we can't rewrite the blueprint of our design out of our own will. In other words, you and I can't wake up one day and say, I don't like me, and I'm going to change me, and I'm going to change me from the inside out. I, I can't change my DNA, I can't change my biology, I can't change those things. We are not autonomous, we're not in charge. God is in charge. God is authoritative. God rules. And so as Christians, one of the reasons that it is so important that we start from the framework that God is creator, God is holy, God is authoritative, is because it reminds us who set the parameters, who set the guidelines, who set the blueprints. God is in charge. That's one reason why our values are so different from the values that are around us. But why do we see the values around us so chaotic? Walker puts it this way. He said, we live in a Genesis 3 world with a Genesis 1 blueprint. Genesis 3 being the fall of man, which we'll discuss in subsequent weeks. We live in a fallen world. And because we live in a fallen world, fallen people want to have control over their own ideologies and over their own persons. Now, one of the things that, that... I think could happen for those of us that live in places like Wilkes County, for those of us that may be uh, separated from some of the ideological challenges that these issues create. Some of you are grandparents. Some of you are not, don't have parents any, or don't have kids any longer in the school system. And some of you are thinking, thank God that I don't have to deal with this with relation to how it affects the school system and higher education. But I want you to remember this. Walker puts it this way. Where you live may not seem post-Christian. America, for instance, has large numbers of Christians, but the most influential sections of U.S. culture, academia, media, entertainment, art, and law are increasingly no longer influenced by Christianity because those who occupy places of prestige, influence, and cultural impact are in most cases not Christians, nor are they sympathetic to Christian views. Reality is, we may be a little bit protected in the, in, given the location in which we live. But I promise you, all the other sectors that are vying for the attention of your children and grandchildren, even vying for your attention and my attention, do not have the same value system that we have. I mean, things that we would have thought, things that are irrational, things that we would have thought unthinkable. In recent months, it's come out that Disney has... Creative developers who intentionally pushed the envelope on transgender ideologies, homosexual values in children's you know, uh, uh, cartoons and movies. I mean, it is all over the place. You can't watch a Marvel movie or a Star Wars movie anymore without those kind of snippets being in there. And that's just the stuff that is just a little bit there, not the stuff that is 
fully ideologically there that's trying to teach and train our children. So we can't stick our head in the sand. So what does it mean? Uh, how did we get there? That would be the biggest question. So I'd like you to look at the handout in front of you. You're going to notice there uh, 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 two basic, it's basically an outline. It's two-story truth. I'm going to try to unpack this in about three or four minutes when it typically takes me a lot longer than that. I've talked about this before. But if you look at the top part of that handout, there's, there's the first one that says mind and body. What do I mean by two-story truth? This comes from um, Francis Schaeffer's perspective on how uh, truth has been picked up in contemporary culture. Uh, and he was writing in the 50s and 60s when he was articulating this framework. Nancy Piercy picked up on that, and she has kind of dropped it into these arguments that we're going to talk about tonight. How in the world can someone say, I'm not my body, and not be laughed out of the room? I mean, I mean, 50 years ago, that would have been unthinkable, but today it's celebrated and it's promoted. How did we get there? We got there because we have a two-story perspective on truth. If you look at that top line on the second set of lines, you're going to see things like this. Values, faith, person, mind, theology, private, subjective, relativistic, and truth. For your benefit, I have put all those in, in not capital letters. Down below, you'll see capital letters. The reason I did that is because in the two-story model of truth, here's what it says. The, that there are elements of truth that are simply relativistic, personal, and only for us to grasp in terms of, the, you know, the way we set our values in life. But things that are absolute, things that are certain, things that are framed in terms of the world that we can, are not changeable are things like facts, reason, body, science, public, things that are objective, things that are absolute. This divide is called the fact-value dichotomy, and it came all the way, it went all the way back to Immanuel Kant. So about three or four hundred years of philosophical history. Uh, it actually goes back further than that and finds its roots in a gentleman by, that, that you're probably familiar with, maybe not by his name, but by his claim. I think, therefore, I am. Somebody can tell me who that was. Rene Descartes. And his, his statement, I think, therefore, I am, and some of his ideology basically was to, to articulate a position that what he believed in his religious sphere, he was a very devoted Catholic, did not have to affect his public life. He could be Catholic at home and at Mass on Saturday, and then he could have a public life that was disconnected from his private values. That was Descartes' kind of ideology. And what took place in the Enlightenment era that, took place, that was about 100 years after that, and what has continued to take place in contemporary society, is that framework has divided truth. Where what we have today is we have not an absolute holistic truth that we would find in the pages of Scripture. Not a connected truth uh, that we would find in Scripture. But we have a divided truth where things, someone can walk in the room and say, uh, you know, uh, I don't think I'm a man today. Even though biologically I'm a man. And we would listen to what the claims of their mind are and not look at what the biology of their body is. That's how we got there. Nancy Piercy traces all of this in, the book, in her book, Love Thy Body. One of her quotes uh, is this, According to personhood theory, human dignity consists in the ability to exercise conscious, deliberate control over our lives. 
Basically, what she's talking about is that instead of being bound by the reality of our gender, the reality of our height, our weight, the things that are embedded in us based on DNA, no, I get to decide all of those things or all of the things I want to decide based on the way my mind works. Let me show you some implications from this, some tragic implications. Number one, when personhood is detached from biology, and that's exactly where we're living today, when personhood is, is detached from biology, that is when a person becomes human, matters more than when life is conceived. The real problem, this is the real problem with abortion. I think part of the reason why there's such an argument and vehemence against a pro-life position is because it's telling people that there is an authority that is larger and more important than the wishes of one's own mind. So with personhood, with personhood detached from biology, it's no longer a question of when that baby becomes life, but it's a question of when that life becomes a person. And there are all sort of factors that determine personhood. Ability to interact in the world. Ability to have cognitive conversations. Ability to bring value into society. All sort of things. Meaning that it is very possible if personhood theory becomes the predominant worldview of our culture, then people who don't fit a particular narrative within personhood view think those who are mentally ill, think those who are physically or mentally handicapped, think those who no longer provide some kind of use to society, those types of people might no longer be considered persons. And if they're no longer considered persons, they no longer have an absolute right to live. That's the type of worldview that we're facing. That's what's going on in contemporary culture. That's why abortion is such a vile or real issue for us as Christians to have to think through because we're not having the argument anymore based on science. We're having an argument based on some, kind of, some sort of outside idea of personhood. Let me give a second implication. When personhood is detached from biology... Sex becomes an act without emotion or intimacy. One of the more fascinating uh, for its, its implications, fascinating chapters in Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, is her reflection on hookup culture, which is essentially teenagers, young adults, college students engaging in sexual activity as if it's only an act of the body and has nothing to do with one's mind, one's, uh, uh, you know, kind of soul, one's intimacy. And, of course, that is in absolute discord with what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that God put man and woman together. That's why they're one flesh. And that's why Paul talks uh, about purity in 1 Corinthians, about not joining ourselves to a prostitute because then we become one flesh with that prostitute. God created sexual activity to be an intensely intimate connection. But in personhood theory, when you divorce activity from intimacy, then you just go do whatever you want to with your body because your body's just a thing to do something with. The problem with that is, it's a lie. You can't just go do whatever you want to with your body and have no consequences. 
She records instances in that book of teenagers and college students that wind up depressed and frustrated and disenchanted because they are living divorced from reality. You can't do this one day and it not have an effect on your life. Let me give you a third implication of personhood theory. When personhood is detached from biology, what one thinks about self becomes authoritative. And that's the real issue. What one thinks becoming authoritative, it's not gender, biology, or DNA. It's one's mental perspective. That's why you can have 20 plus percent of of a particular uh, party in the United States thinking that a man can become pregnant. That's why you can have people walking, walking into their psychologist's office, their doctor's office, and, and, and telling them that I need my gender fixed because I am not what my gender tells me I am. That's why you can have all sort of craziness that takes place because authority no longer rests in science. It doesn't rest in biology. It doesn't rest in DNA. It doesn't rest in chromosomes any longer. It rests in what one thinks about oneself. That's a real problem. It's a real problem in our society. It's a real problem in our culture. It's a huge problem because what we think about ourselves is wrong because we're tainted by human sin, as we're going to discover next week when we look at the doctrine of original sin. Uh, Let me talk a, a few more about some illustrations and some things that are going on in our society that I think are tragic uh, and then we're going to come back to, okay, what does the Bible say about the human person? What, what sense can we make biblically? And what do we take away from this? According to one study, uh, one, of the, one of the more tragic challenges, by the way, of the transgender ideology is how it is targeting children. It's not just kind of this conversation for adults in their 30s, 40s, and 50s to to kind of try to figure out who they are. It's attracting and and, uh, focusing on children. It's why you have drag queen events that invite children. And uh, folks, just the headlines of stuff that you can read without even reading the articles is sickening. The things that are taking place all over American life. And you're like, this is gross. This is disgusting. This is abusive. I mean, it, it's just wrong. So here, here's, it's not new, by the way, for children, 6, 8, 12, to have questions about their gender. That's not new. That, that kind of stuff has been going on for decades, centuries. Listen to this. According to one study, 75 to 95% of, pre, uh, of children pre-puberty who were distressed by their biological sex, eventually outgrew that distress. Bottom line is, if there's a, any kind of struggle, whether it's cognitive, physical, whatever, and it's not 75 to 95% of children, it's 75 to 90% of children who have distress. Most children do not have distress about their gender. But those that do, studies have shown they outgrow those by the time they get through puberty. So you're only talking about a tremendously small percentage of children that go through puberty that are still struggling with gender and the gender of their birth. 
very, very small. But yet what we're seeing today is this desire to put children on puberty blockers so they can make decisions about their gender. Listen, we don't let children drink alcohol for a host of reasons. We don't let children go to war for us. We don't let children choose to have sex with adults. Those things are wrong and sinful. Why in the world would we let a child make a decision about that, that's going to affect them for the rest of their lives, put on puberty blockers or have genetic surgery, or not genetic, but, uh, gender surgery, to change them appearance-wise from one thing to another? It's, it's abusive behavior. It's wrong, it's sinful, and as Christians, we've got to be aware that this is the kind of stuff we're going to continue to see in the culture in which we live. I'll give you a quote from uh, a board chair of uh, the Department of American Psychiatry and Neurology. He put it this way. He said, Transgendered are people who claim that they are or they wish to be of the opposite sex to which they were born or to which their chromosomal configuration attests. Sometimes, some of these people have claimed they're a woman trapped in a man's body or alternatively, a man trapped in a woman's body. Scientifically, there is no such thing. The proper treatment of emotional unhappiness is not surgery. Cosmetic surgery will not change the chromosomes of a human being. Cosmetic surgery will not make a man become a woman capable of menstruating, ovulating, or having children. Cosmetic surgery will not make a woman into a man capable of generating sperm that can unite with an egg or an ovum from a woman and fertilize that egg to produce a human child. These are scientific facts. I promise you he's not a popular psychiatrist in today's culture. But that's, that's the facts. On top of this, one of the greatest challenges that we see with the transgendered ideology is that, catch this, those in the LGBTQ affirming um, ideology are 20, have a, have a suicide rate nearly 20 times that of the general population. And some on, on different sides of the political and ideological aisle would say that's because we don't accept them and that's because we don't encourage them and that's because we don't support them. The reality is, if you're confused about your gender, your gender, then you've got some serious emotional and stable and mental health issues that need to be dealt with. And you're only going to exacerbate those challenges if you go have surgery. Some of you in this room have had surgeries. And you know that surgery itself... For a very normal, real thing, life-saving surgery or not life-saving surgery, surgery that needs to happen can be traumatic, emotional, psychologically affecting, and you have to have it. You start talking about surgery that changes one's physical appearance, and and we think that's going to fix the brain. It doesn't fix the brain. It creates more and more problems. So... These are some of the challenges that we're seeing in, in, in the world in which we live. So what do we do with this? What do we as Christians, how do we adapt to this? Not adapt to it, confront it. How do we figure it out? What does the Bible teach us about the human person with regard to identity, self-awareness, self-understanding? Uh, one of the things I want us to remember is that when you look back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31... 
And God saw that everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. God made us men and women. God made us male and female. He made us in his image, male and female. So our framework is really, really simple. There are all kind of complicated conversations that we can have. There are certainly real issues. Folks who struggle with gender dysphoria. I'll come back to that in a quote at the end end tonight. There are people who struggle. And there are ways that we as Christians can interact with people who struggle. But the baseline framework comes back to God made us in his image. Made us male and female in his image. And God said that is very good. That's his purpose for the way to where to live our lives. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the human person? Who are we? Who are you? Sitting here in, in a room on a Wednesday night, you know, the, the, the best of the best spiritually. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but the cream of the crop at churches are those who come to prayer meetings and Bible studies. Can I get an amen? amen. Of course, we've got to be careful with that because we don't want to pat ourselves on the shoulder too much and think of ourselves pridefully. But who are we really? Okay, there are several different uh, theological affirmations or theological positions on the human person. Uh, I'll try to say these accurately, but they're in front of you on the handout. Trichotomism, T-R-I-C-H-O-T-O-M-I-S-M. It should be on the screen. Trichotomism. Those are those who believe that the human person is made up of body, soul, and spirit. And you get that from a text like... Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Hold on a second. I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So trichotomism uh, is the theological concept that you are a body, you are a soul, and you are a spirit. Okay? That's one concept. Uh, a second one is dichotomism, which obviously makes sense. It's a two-part division of the human person. We are body and soul. The trichotomist position, uh, in part, developed its popularity because of, uh, not specifically because of Plato. Plato was a dualist in himself, but Plato had, had, a, had a knack for threes. He had like divisions in the human person. He had things like reason, appetite, and will is what made up the human mind. And so one of the things that happened throughout, human, throughout Christian history is when you found a text like 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 5, and you had body, soul, and spirit, people who were, who were kind of influenced by Greek philosophy, Greek ideology, picked that up and said, okay, that's how we are. We're, we're body, soul, and spirit. Others came along and said, where do we get the third part? In soul and spirit, aren't they kind of the same thing? Uh, we, we think that there's a part of us that lasts forever, uh, but we know the body is not a part of us that, that lives forever, at least in its bodied state, because we all die, right? And so the dichotomous position has been the typical position throughout Christian history. There are two other positions, though. The third one would be the monist position or monism, uh, and that's very simply that human persons are embodied. There are no parts of us that remain after death. So when you die, that's it. There's nothing. Unless God resurrects the body. Millard Erickson in his text, Introducing Christian Doctrine, which some of you have gotten that text and read. I'm following basically his order. If not his, his chapter by chapter notes. But he proposes a solution called conditional unity. 
his proposed solution is that the normal state of a human person is that we are complex. We are complex. Uh, you are a body, but you are more than a body. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, we are complex, but yet we are whole. Let me try to make sense out of that. I, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't really hold to the trichotomous position at all. I don't think we're body, soul, and spirit. I think what that does is that divides us out in a way that is not the intention of the biblical writers. I think if you look back in the Old Testament, when you had phrases like body, soul, and spirit, when you had Jesus, for example, telling us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, he's not telling us to love God with three parts of us if we don't love God with the fourth part of us. Or that we can love God with two parts of us one day and then the other two parts of us the next day. He's not creating some kind of arbitrary division within our person. What's he saying? Heart, mind, soul, and strength. He's saying love God with everything that you are. The, 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 the intention of those scriptural texts is to say that we are at least a body and we're something more than a body because there's a part of us that we know is deeper than our body. It's, I mean, what you think in your mind certainly extends beyond right, the physicality that you have. I know that and you know that because some of you are getting a little older and your mind tells you you can do things that your body reveals to you that you're not able to do any longer, right? I mean, there, there can be a disconnect. We are more than that. So I, I, think, I think Erickson's provision there that we are a conditional unity. We are a whole person, folks. We're a whole person. That's going to be really important when we get to our, our, the end in our takeaways. We're a whole person. All right, so, so what does that leave us with? Takeaway number one. Humans who have been made in God's image may be more than their bodies, but they're not less than their bodies. We may be more than our bodies, but we're not less than our bodies. That should do a few things for us. The Bible doesn't specifically articulate that our bodies are evil. When Paul uses arguments in the New Testament like the sinfulness of the human flesh, he's not talking about the fact that we operate in some kind of true dualism, that our body is evil and that our soul is good. That would be definitely platonic, and that's where Plato kind of held his dualism, that things that are fleshly and physical are evil and, and terrible, and only the things that are internal are good and right. The Bible has no concept of that. It, it, Particularly because when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, God did not create Adam and Eve as a soul and call them good, and then they became bodied after sin. That's not what happened. God created Adam and Eve as bodies, physical human beings. Yes, with an internal part, their soul their spirit, however we want to define that, but certainly with a bodied part. And the, uh, the, the commands of God to be fruitful and multiply, that's a bodied reality. That's a bodied experience. And so let me just say this. Whether you like it or not, you are not anything less than the body that you have. Let me give you some applications here. You only get one of them. Use it well. I'm not trying to be like critical or mean or anything like that. It's just, we only get one body. 
well, you get a new one down the road. I don't know how. I mean, it's got to be glorious. It's got to be better than this one. Hopefully, it's less painful than this one. I know y'all, some of y'all say amen to that. Um, but we only get one physical body. So we've got to use it. And, and let me say it this way. Nothing we do internally with our mind and our soul and spirit, nothing we do can be done without the, the, the functional participation of our body. You cannot love the Lord your God with your mind and not love the Lord your God in an embodied state. It's not possible. You can't love another person. You can't say, I love you, I love you, I mean it, I mean it in my heart, I mean it in my soul, and then act like a jerk to that person. You can't do it. We are whole persons. That's why Paul says, and we're going to preach on this in a few weeks, he says, present your minds as living sacrifices. No, he says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. Because we are, we may be more than our bodies. Certainly, there's an internal part of us that does live forever. Thankful Paul said that, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Absolutely, that's true. But you can't do anything outside your body. That's why your body matters. That's why it's important. That's why God says we're to take care of it. That's why God says we're to manage it. That's why God says we're to live in it. That's why things that happen to our bodies, good, bad, or indifferent, affect every other part of us. And if we don't recognize, you can't, you can't uh, divorce yourself from your physical experiences. It would be awesome if we could, but we can't do it. Um, one, one of the more fascinating illustrations of that, if some of you took me up on the, the suggestion to listen to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, one of the things they get to later on in that, in that series of conversations is how the, the trauma, the, the church abuse trauma that was going on in that church affected people physically. Because you can't just have internal effects that don't, that don't re, re, uh, result or that don't affect how you physically relate. And vice versa. You can't have a physical trauma that doesn't affect your internal person. Because we are whole beings. So you're not, more than, you're not less than your body, but you're not more than your body. That, that means a lot of things. So what do we do if someone walks into our church and walks up to me as pastor, walks up to you and says... Yeah, I know what I look like on the outside. I look like a, a Bobby, but I am a, a, I, I am a, 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 a Betty. There you go. I was trying to think of a, a good, good female name. What do we do with that? Well, it's going to be challenging because we're going to see some of that in, in the next decades of our personal experiences. Some of you are already seeing that in family relationships. We're going to see that in church life. What do we do? Well, we have to cry in a Christ-like way, a very humble way, a compassionate way, a very truthful way, go back to what the pages of Scripture say. Certainly, we've got to interact with it. Certainly, we've got to care for them. Certainly, there's a level of respect and, and, and interest and listening that we as Christians ought to be able to do because nothing that someone else comes and says to us ought to really intimidate us and worry us because we have a God who's truly authoritative and truly full of truth. And he's also a God who's truly full of grace and can heal and help. But yet, we're going to have to deal with those kind, of, those kind of things and take them back to the pages of Scripture, which here's what Scripture says. We're not less than our bodies. I'll give you a second takeaway. That we are whole persons means that we are to love the Lord with all of us. 
Let me, give, let me give you a real practical example. We're in a series on worship at Wilkesboro Baptist Church. Okay? Do you realize you cannot worship God without your body? So when we gather on a Sunday morning, congregational gathering of worshiping believers, gathering in three assemblies, three services here at Wilkesboro Baptist Church, if you're not here with us, you can't worship with us. Y'all know that. Y'all are the ones that are here. There's some other folks that need to be reminded of that. Really hard to worship God, love God with everything, and you're not here. You're not present. Can you worship God on the golf course? Can you worship God fishing? Can you worship God at work? I guess you can. Absolutely. It's possible. But here's what I've noticed in life. The folks that aren't worshiping God in the gathered body of believers are not worshiping God when they're on the golf course, when they're on the fishing boat, and when they're at work on Sundays. Okay? And, and let me tell you how I know that. And I'll tell you how you know that. Because there are times you've not been at church on Sundays and you've not been worshiping God on Sundays. And times I have too. And I'm not saying that to be like critical judgmental. I'm not saying don't ever go away on a vacation. I'm not saying that kind of stuff. I'm just saying we can't worship God without worshiping God with our bodies. Let me tell you something else. When we're worshiping God with the body of believers... If you're not actively worshiping God with your body, you're not worshiping God. Jesus tells us we're to worship in spirit and in truth. That means internally, what we believe needs to come out externally with what we say and what we do. In other words, it's active. It has to be. Or it's not there. And the same thing's true with any other aspect of loving God. You, you, we can't say we love God here in our heart and in our feelings without actually doing something about that, those feelings and those desires, even if they're seated good desires, what God wants, without putting our hands to action, without re opening God's word and reading it, without speaking a kind word, without serving someone else. I'm not going to belabor those points. I just wanted to say that. I think that's a healthy takeaway. I'll give you a third takeaway. Personhood and identity are the worldview notions that will increasingly distinguish a biblical worldview from the contemporary views. Uh, I, I think probably the predominant distinguishing mark for Christians in contemporary American society in the next 30 to 50 years will be on the issues of personhood and identity, particularly as they relate to things like Abortion, sexuality, gender, identity. I think those are going to be the, the distinguishing marks. So if we're going to be a Christian, we have to be a Christian in those values, not just in, 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 in the values that, that help us seem nice to everybody around us. And if we're going to be a follower of Jesus, we have to be a follower of Jesus in what he says, uh, in all of Scripture, not just the parts that make us feel comfortable. That's why a few years ago I did a series uh, on identity uh, and ethics and sexuality. I think it was 2017 or 2018. I still have all of those uh, sermon notes. Uh, we've po they're actually on the website somewhere. They were on the website somewhere. I'm not sure if they're still there. I can send them to you. You're interested in them. They've got all sort of resources. If you're, a, if you're dealing with some of these types of issues, I can send you some sources that at least maybe take you to some other source that can help you work through some of these issues. Uh, here's takeaway number four. This is a good one. 
Because our whole person is body and soul, we can anticipate a future embodied state. And just, I wanted to leave you on a good note. This has not been one of the easier uh, talks and lectures that we've done. So let me leave you in a good place. There's going to come a day when you're going to die. That's not good news. Okay? But if you die with Christ, you're going to be with Christ when you die. And whatever we think of where we are when we die, and I think we go to be in the presence of the Lord, that state of being in the presence of the Lord is not the permanent state. It's not the goal. The goal is not for us to hover around as some kind of spirit, soul beings in God's presence. The Bible says God is spirit. But God is spirit is going to resurrect the bodies of those that love him and know him. And so... Get used to being in your body because you're going to be in a body for all of eternity. Thank goodness it'll be a perfected body. Don't know what that means. Don't know what that means we will do or won't do. I have no idea. The Bible doesn't tell us a whole lot of, about what we'll do in that embodied state. But we're going to eat. There's a marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to walk through heaven's courts and see a new Jerusalem and all sort of things that we're going to do. Uh, also... That should help us. Because some of you have lost some people that are dear and near to you. You're going to see them again. In an embodied state. Uh, again, don't know when and all how all that's going to work out. But that's encouraging. Let me leave you with one quote though. Uh, because these are very real issues. They're, they're not just esoteric. They're not just theological. They're not just out there and, and academic. They meet real people where they are. And folks, some real people really struggle with this stuff. You in the room may have never struggled with homoerotic desires. You may have never questioned your gender identity. Maybe none of that's happened to any of you. But for some people, it is a real struggle. And it's a real struggle because we live in a sinful, fallen world. One particular lady uh, in one of the books that I, that, that I read on the subject, one, one particular lady struggles with gender dysphoria. It's basically gender confusion. She really struggles with it. And it's something she's navigated with her psychologist and psychiatrist. And here's what she had to say about the struggle that she has internally and also in relating it to her faith. Here's what she says. Suffering in Christianity is not only not meaningless... It is ultimately one of the most powerful media for transmission of meaning. We can stand in adoration between the cross and kneel and kiss the wood that bore the body of our Savior because this is the means by which the ugly, meaning, meaningless, atheistic suffering of the world was transmuted into living water, the blood of Christ, the wellspring of creation. The great paradox here is that the tree of Death and suffering is the tree of life. This central paradox in Christianity allows us to love our own brokenness precisely because it is through that brokenness that we image the broken body of our God and the highest expression of divine love. That God in some sense wills it to be so seems evident in Gethsemane where Christ prays, not my will but thine be done and when God's will is done it involves the scourge and the nails. It's also always struck me as particularly fitting and beautiful that when Christ is resurrected, his body is not returned to a state of perfection, 
as the body of Adam in Eden, but rather it still bears the marks of his suffering and death. Folks, we don't just need to have this conversation as academic, although we need to have it as academic, and to have it as recognizing that there's real suffering in and around us. And guess what? Because we have a Christ who suffered on our behalf, your suffering, even if it doesn't, even if it's not in this arena, is not meaningless. It's in that suffering that we can actually meet the one who suffered for us and whose scars of suffering will be evident forever and forever and forever. That should give us encouragement and hope. Amen? Hope you have a great night. We'll come back next week and discuss the doctrine of sin and what brought all of this broken sinfulness, wickedness, and suffering in the world. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.